we want to provide hope for people. Their real question is, what's wrong with me? And they start to think, I'm a bad person because I do these things. There are all sorts of negative stereotypes that I'm in, indulging in. And they think it's them. Well, it's not really you. It's, it's your ancestors who came before you. You're listening to Eat for Life, the show that aims to help you identify the root causes of what ails you so you can heal and live the life you are meant for. I'm your host, Sammy G. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Albert Mensa, co-founder of Mensa Medical in Warrenville, Illinois, a clinic that specializes in the treatment of biochemical imbalances and the cognitive and physical disorders caused by those imbalances. Since 2005, Dr. Mensa has treated over 30,000 patients using all-natural, non-pharmaceutical, targeted nutrient therapy. His practice focuses on the management and treatment of cognitive disorders such as autism, behavior and learning disorders, eating disorders, bipolar disorder, anxiety syndromes, childhood and adult schizophrenia, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, as well as family medicine. Dr. Mensa regularly presents at international conferences, trains physicians in advanced nutrient therapy techniques, and serves as a consultant with other healthcare professionals. Dr. Mensa received his medical degree from Finch University of Health Sciences, Chicago Medical School, and is board certified in integrative pediatrics by the American Association of Integrative Medicine. Dr. Mensa is a world-renowned leader and teacher in methylation disorders, and in this episode, we're talking about genetics, epigenetics, the controversial MTHFR test, as well as misconceptions and dangers about the different forms of folic acid and their impact on the in utero environment. Welcome to Eat for Life, Dr. Mensa. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Sammy. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. <laughs> I, I just, I'm always so excited when we get to have these chats, and especially for this episode, I'm really fascinated at how often we see the same stories in our patients within different generations of family members, things like ADHD, alcoholism sexual abuse, schizophrenia, depression, even autoimmune and eating disorders. Can you tell me about a time when you worked with a family that presented in this way? And what was their biochemical story? What do you tend to see? I know you also have some twin stories that are really quite fascinating. I love twin stories. I'm, I'm going to save that one for a little bit later. Um, <laughs> but when we, we Unfortunately, what we see is um, certain chemistries lend themselves to certain types of predispositions relative to conditions. So, for example, we'll do a family history and we'll hear someone say, gosh, well, you know, I'm an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. His dad was an alcoholic. Uh, my uncles are all alcoholics and my brothers are all alcoholics. Alcoholism runs in the family. And I tell them, no, alcoholism does not run in your family. And they look at me like, what are you talking about? It's my family. <laughs> and I say, well, listen, the conditions that predispose to alcoholism, like undermethylation, run in your family. And now the situations of stress come into play. And so you drink in order to try to relieve the anxiety and the depressive factor 
you're self-medicating. But the difference is that individuals who are undermethylated have a very strong capacity for addictive behaviors. Yes. So even though you may try drinking for one reason, you end up drinking for a different reason, which is that your system becomes highly attached to it. So it started off here in one place and ends up in a different place. And that same tendency gets passed on generation after generation after generation. That's just one example. That's a powerful example. And we also see that in a condition called pyral disorder. And if you haven't listened to episode two, please go back and listen to episode two, because I gave a, a breakdown of all the disorders that we work with, the chemistries, I should say, that we work with. Dr. Mensa, can you, can you share a bit more about pyral disorder and why we see alcoholism there as well and what people groups we see that in? Oftentimes, pyral disorder, we see it in, um, in two populations genetically. Those are the Irish or the Welsh, that group, um, and the Scandinavians. Mm -hmm. And really what we're looking at is the attempt at self-medication because people with pyral disorder tend to have anxiety. They have depression. They have severe mood swings, and they don't know why. They haven't done anything, and they still feel this way. They act this way. And family members will say, listen, we all walk around eggshells around that person mm -hmm. okay? yes, for no reason. And they'll just snap at the smallest thing. Or you never know how long something's going to take to build up. And then they just all of a sudden unleash on the world with a wrath that is far more disproportionate than what the initial insult really should warrant. So we see that quite often. And as a result, they seek artificial means to sort of settle themselves down. Yes. And that artificial means is oftentimes alcohol or some type of drug behavior, uh, including marijuana, anything they'll try to just settle themselves down. But with undermethylated folks, they have a highly addictive personality once again, and they get stuck, not because anymore it's anxiety, but because their chemistry seems to crave it now. So it's a very slippery slope to move down when you don't know your chemistry, and then especially if you're undermethylated. Yeah, you know, thank you for sharing that, Dr. Mensa. What I love about how you you sh you shifted that, you reframed the story of my family has a history of alcoholism to no, your family has a certain biochemical trending, if you will. And when we look at it through that lens, I feel like that creates more of a healing pattern, a healing pathway, if you will, for that patient. And I feel like that frees them up to see their their history and their life in a different way, which is really empowering, don't you think? Absolutely, because we want to provide hope for people. Their yeah. real question is, what's wrong with me? And they start to think, I'm a bad person because I do these things. There are all sorts of negative stereotypes that I'm in indulging in. And they think it's them. Well, it's not really you. It's, it's your ancestors who came before you. Okay, um, They passed these things on. And it wasn't them. It was their ancestors who passed it on. And it wasn't them. It was their ancestors before them. So there, there are these genetic patterns that, that tend themselves towards moving in these directions with these different issues and these different problems. Um, but it is typically not that person's fault. It really isn't. Yes. Yes. Now, someone out, there, and someone out there is, of course, saying, well, listen, you have responsibility. You just need to stop it. 
Well, you know, when it's a biochemical phenomenon, it's not easy to talk your way out of it. Exactly. You actually have to be treated and change some things. So yes, there's some level of responsibility, but it's not one that you just sort of think yourself away or, or cognitive yourself out of that mm. kind of a mindset. Yeah. Fake it till you make it mind over matter. I get so annoyed when people say that because we, you and I both know that's not true when we're dealing with these types of biochemical imbalances. So I really appreciate that perspective. Let's talk about transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. And I'm, I'm curious, Dr. Mensa, what is that and how is it different from genetics and epigenetics? Okay. So Genetics involves literally the blueprint that says, this is who you are, okay? Epigenetics says, here's your blueprint. Now, I'm going to go ahead and smudge your blueprint a little bit here. I'm going to X a few things out, and I'm going to add a few things to produce a new or different picture of the one that you were originally designed to be. Mm-hmm. Transgenetic or, or epigenetic inheritance now takes that individual who has gone through some type of trauma, it now changes that genetic structure, and that change gets passed on to the next generation. Okay. Whereas with simple epigenetics, the new structure that's present doesn't get necessarily transferred to the next generation. The original genetic structure gets translated down. But when you're talking about this genetic inheritance, it's a process where now all of these changes that have created really powerful shifts in the bookmarks of the DNA, that new thing gets passed on to the next generation and the next generation after that. And they don't know why. Why do I feel stressed all the time? Why do I feel anxious all the time? What happened? And you know what's really odd, Samantha? Oftentimes, people have a sense that something was going on in the family before them. Yes. And when they get to the right age, they start asking very interesting questions. And I'm not trying to get into the spiritual or the metaphysical, but what I'm sharing is that there is an inner knowing mm-hmm. that something is wrong. I'll give you one example of a personal nature. So my oldest brother, um, I'm from Ghana, West Africa, and that's where I was born, my family, all of us. But my oldest brother, many, many, many years older than I am, we are about 15 years apart, he was killed. Mm. And a very, very difficult situation. I was only three years old okay, at the time. I didn't have a lot of memory of him consciously, but I really had a very strong subconscious feeling about him. Well, my oldest sister's son, who never met this man, he's separated by a few decades could not stop thinking about this man. Wow. He said, you know, he said, Mom, what happened to Uncle Michael? He was literally just changed and moved. And throughout his life, and I remember him ever since he was born, okay, periodically, years go by, all of a sudden, tell me about Uncle Michael. You know, what's so special about this guy? What's going on here? He had a sense something wasn't right. Hmm. And... That that change was there that affects the entire family because Michael was my oldest sister's younger brother, the first one, okay? Mm-hmm. She knew him very well, 
and he was very dear to her heart. When he died, something changed in her. That change got passed on to her son. Okay? Wow. So there can be real transgenerational shifts. Yes. People who've been traumatized of, of other natures, unfortunately, um, oftentimes the same thing happens. There's a new predisposition. Something's not quite right about that next child okay, or group of kids. So there is something to be said about yes. these changes that happen to get passed on to the next generation versus something that's just purely genetic mm-hmm. or epigenetic wow. for, that, for that issue. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. Uh, I'm sorry for your loss. That's that that is a powerful story. I think, you know, I've I've experienced that in my own family as well. And and I know we hear a lot of stories like this from our own patients where they talk about, you know, that discernment, that intuitive sense of yes, there's just something that feels really off. So I I, I think that's powerful. So with that being said, I'd like to kind of back up this story, the narrative of where we're going and way up actually to that delicate in utero period and talk now about folic acid during pregnancy and its effects on the in utero environment. Now, Dr. Mensa, you know, you and I have talked a lot about this and I know for well over, I think it's been well over 15 years, what the Mensa medical stance is on this, but can you share with us why is folic acid problematic after the first trimester and how has this contributed to all of these, you know, pretty substantial increases in things like autism and mental health disorders and schizophrenia, things like that, eating disorders. I'd love for you to share more about that specifically, because this is really powerful right here. Yeah. You know, we are, um, I'll just say, you know, doctors are brilliant people, quite brilliant, until we get stupid. (laughs) And then we become dumber after that. And then eventually we realize how dumb we were and we become smart again. I've said this quite a few times. You know, a little bit of folic acid does wonders for stopping neural tube defects from developing in babies and children. We know this. It's fact. So that's a really good idea. So instead of just going through the first trimester, let's go through to the next trimester. Oh, that worked pretty well. Let's go through a year. Oh, let's give folic acid to our breastfeeding mothers. What I want to delineate is the idea of a nutrient versus a molecular targeting agent. Mm. Okay. A molecular targeting agent is powerful. And what we did not understand back when we thought we were so brilliant is that that's exactly (laughs) what we were unleashing on a mother and an infant, a molecular targeting agent. Folic acid is a powerful methylating agent, powerful. And that's the problem. Because it is powerful, you don't need excess exposure unless you really need it. Now, this child developing, we don't know what their methylation status is. Heck, when we first started talking about folic acid, we didn't even know what methylation was, okay? Outside of regular chemistry, you add a methyl molecule to another molecule, and that's methylation. But we didn't know the ramifications. Then we came to find out, okay, we can literally demethylate babies in utero. And let's just do the math here. Individuals with autism, the vast majority, more than 90% are undermethylated. Yes. Individuals with ADHD, the vast majority of them, more than 95% are undermethylated. 
That's different than ADD. Most of those individuals are overmethylated. Okay. Mm. But so now, why is it that we've seen a rise in ADHD and autism right around the same time that we started giving longer dosages of folic acid to our patients in there who were pregnant and then our babies through breastfeeding? And don't forget, folic acid is put into food, it's yes. put into bread, cereals, orange juice, milk all sorts of enriched or fortified products, we have been supersaturating the system with a very powerful molecular targeting agent. It's like say, saying we're taking nuclear warheads and dropping them everywhere around you. And they were wondering, oh, why are all these people coming out with radioactive strangeness mm, you know, and sickness exactly. and illness? Okay? Mm -hmm. We see that that is a huge problem. And we have to really wake up to the fact that many of these conditions we're actually creating unknowingly okay and I, I hate to move in this direction but you know that's one consideration and, and in utero it's powerful because what folate does is that it donates methyl in the level of the cytoplasm outside of where your dna sits okay but then it goes into the nucleus of the cell and it steals 10 times as much methyl removes methyl more so than it donated so it becomes a functional nuclear demethylating agent. So wherever it was your methylation concentration stood, your methyl concentration stood, the folic acid is removing it. It's only beneficial up until a point, but then our excess utility has created difficulties. Again, there are many challenges in mental health that are undermethylated, powerfully undermethylated conditions. Yes. And the correlation is just too powerful, just too powerful. Dr. Mensah, can you talk about how our methylation status is established in utero? Yes. Our ancestors pretty much give us the option of methylation status. And most of the time, that's really where it's coming from. So we are, at the time of conception, really, we've chosen our state of life. Um, our methylation capacities are really determined at that point in time. But there are things that you can do in the environment to shift the activity, not the genetic predisposition, but the actual activity. Now, what do I, what do I mean by that? Remember, we talked about molecular targeting agents. Mm -hmm. okay? You can target an undermethylated situation and add more methyl to it so that it normalizes in behavior. But once you stop that intervention, the system goes back to the, its original design and designation. And again, it functions as an undermethylated system. Mm -hmm. yes. The same can be said for overmethylation. Okay. You can be designed as an overmethylator, but now through molecular targeting, you can remove all that methyl and you can actually test looking like an undermethylator. <laughs> but your genes say you're an overmethylator. And again, mm. if you stop that genetic intervention, if you stop that molecular targeting intervention, your system will once again start to overmethylate. Okay. Mm. So that is laid down at birth, that, excuse me, at conception. And that comes from your ancestry. And sometimes it's a double hit whammy when you've got two of the same kind of biochemical parents coming together and you produce a, a powerfully overmethylated child because they're both overmethylated or a powerfully undermethylated child because they're both undermethylated, but it only takes one parent. Yes. And so the wow. kids will pick 
They'll say, hmm, I want daddy's under methylation. Or, I want mommy's under methylation. And, and you, you, it's so funny because you hear it, you see it. A parent will say, oh, I've been watching that kid for three years and he's just like me. Okay. And the grandparents will say, oh, that one of yours, you did the same thing when you were his age. And then you did that and that and that. Everyone out there has heard this. You've heard it. He says, oh, it reminds me of Aunt Susie. It reminds me of great Uncle Fred. Oh, watch out for that one. That's that's Cousin Jimmy. Okay. So it's there. There's a reason it's there. Because yes. our genes are coming from our family, our pool. Okay. The difference is that now after birth, now epigenetics comes into play. Okay. So now the environment now has its impact on genetic expression. And that's why when we talk about Sammy genetic tests, I always go, are you kidding me? Genes genes aren't telling you, genetic tests aren't telling you what's happening now. They're only telling you what could be. Hmm, Exactly. I want to bring something into play here because you mentioned it earlier and I'll come back to this story again, but twins, okay? Twins have the exact same DNA, identical twins. How is it some of them look different? Mm-hmm, the exactly. property brothers from from uh, HGTV. HGTV, yes. <laughs> they're, they're, they're supposedly identical twins, <laughs> genetically. Come on, who can't tell those two boys apart? Okay. <laughs> I've heard people say, "Oh, that one's more handsome. Yeah, that yeah. one's more rugged. That one's oh, I love his beard. Yeah, whatever it is. <laughs> okay. Same DNA, but different epigenetics. Yes. Okay. So now, if we can see this in identical twins. Why is it so hard for us to understand that we ourselves get affected by the environment that we're in, in terms of genetic expression? Mm-hmm. So the real question uh, begs, how many of us are actually the same blueprint definition or manifestation as we were actually designed to be without epigenetics? Mm. So a genetic test is only potential. It says you've got these genes. It doesn't tell you they're actually turned on. Yes. Okay? Uh, and so even with like the MTHFR testing, which we'll probably talk about later, you know, that even says it's only potential, not actualization. And people see these genetic tests and say, oh, I've got the gene for this and I've got the gene for that. Well, I tell you, you've got six <laughs> lethal genes. And if any one of those six genes is turned on right now, you're dead. You die. You drop dead. <laughs> and since the human race has been around for I don't know how long. <laughs> Everybody who's had these genes, guess what? The genes weren't turned on. So just because you have a gene doesn't mean it is so. Yes. Okay? Thank you for I can tell that. you something. I'm going to share some things that are of a very personal nature. So uh, because of my nieces and their initial looking into genetics, they did Ancestry.com, and so did I. So those of you who've never seen me, you go to YouTube and you take a good look at me. And I'm going to tell you right now that I'm Scandinavian. <laughs> I have got a percentage of Swedish. I've got a percentage of Norwegian. And I've got relatives, according to that thing. Okay, I've seen what they look like. And I can tell you, we don't look a thing alike. <laughs> but I've got the genes. Yes. <laughs> so please remember, the next time you go to do genetic testing and you hear you've got the MTHFR gene, or you've got that gene, or you've got that gene... If you're not testing your chemistry, you remember Dr. Mensa is Irish and Scandinavian, okay? As well as Norwegian, as well as British, 
my Thank niece, you. my yeah. niece, whose mother is is my sister, and whose father is purely one hundred percent African. She's also Portuguese. So, and she looks nothing like anyone from Portugal. So, don't tell me about genetic tests. Okay. Yes, there's a degree of truth to these things. Okay. But I wanted to give you something you'll remember. When next time you see a genetic test, you need to ask yourself, has this gene been expressed in me Mm -hmm. or is it simply sitting there dormant? You know, Dr. Mensa, I'm really glad that you brought up the MTHFR test because genetic testing in general is such a highly controversial topic, especially where methylation is concerned. And many people and practitioners are looking to these types of tests for treatment purposes. Can you explain more about why this is so problematic, especially in the area of mental health? Mm -hmm. First of all, the concept around the MTHFR, as it has been, as it has evolved, is not correct. Um, It is not the major consideration for methylation. It is indeed a powerful methylating enzyme in a certain part of your system, but it's part of a backup pathway, mm-hmm. not a primary pathway. Yes. So when you are feeding the backup pathway and not feeding the primary pathway, well, what happens when your backup is depleted? You plunge. Yes. That's part one. Part two, MTHFR does not actually represent methylation status. Okay. Methylation status is determined by a tug of war, as we've said for a long time now, a tug of war between enzymes for undermethylation versus enzymes of overmethylation. Mm-hmm. The 8 to 10 enzymes over here versus the uh, 12 enzymes over here, as groups, whoever wins that tug of war determines your methylation status, not one enzyme. The MTHFR test, by the way, only says that if you've got these SNPs or aberrations, you may, please note the words, may have a 30% chance (laughs) of difficulty with regard to methylation. Exactly, 30%, my goodness. (laughs) Let's shift that, Sammy, right? If that's 30%, what does that mean? It means you've got a 70% that this has nothing to do with the equation. 70% chance, okay? The the molecule is also huge. And what many doctors forget in terms of basic science and thinking, they don't check the molecular weight. None of us really do. But when you start doing the research, the molecular weight of this thing is huge. It's a 77,000 kilodalton um, molecule. It's like saying you've got a giant truck that is five stories tall and three miles long with 77,000 tires. Wow. And then people say, oh, I've got a SNP. Let's say a SNP equals one tire. And let's say you've got two SNPs. That equals two tires. And these tires, let's just say, are 20 feet tall. So you lose one or two tires out of 77,000. It leaves you with 69,998 tires. Do you honestly think this truck is going to slow down or stop? (laughs) Exactly. That's the analogy I want people to remember about this MTHFR thing. It is flawed on multiple levels. It does not represent methylation. There's only a 30% chance that it's not even functioning properly. The odds are even with those SNPs, ridiculous odds it's not even slowing down this molecule a bit okay and it does not play a prominent role in mental health yes we already know this 
Okay, mm-hmm. these are not, and there's a difference between fact and truth. Fact, you may have a SNP, it doesn't mean the truth is that that SNP is causing you any trouble. But it's a genetic test, it, it, it must be so, it must have some relevance. Let me give you some genetic analyses here. Every single one of us has six lethal genes. You activate, turn on one of those genes, and you drop dead right now. No wow. questions. Six mm-hmm. lethal genes. How long has the uh, population of humans on this planet been? <laughs> if everyone's got six lethal genes, how are we even still alive? Exactly. If you use the same logic, they should have all turned on and we should have all been dead. Even our kids should have been dead at some point. So we shouldn't have been here generations ago. All you need is one lethal gene. All we're talking about is one enzyme. And that enzyme is too large. It's not the prominent creature in methylation. Treating it gets you nowhere. There's the other thing. Exactly, yes. If this were, if this were all so concrete and correct, using methylated folate, everyone should be cured. The vast majority of people, I have rarely ever heard in these years since this test came out, of probably more than two or three people who actually said they did well beyond three months. They did well with methylated folate. Mm. And if they did, it's more likely they were over-methylated, not under-methylated. Okay? So, you know, look, we've been doing this as organizations for at least three generations now. Okay? It was Dr. Walsh, our mentor, who first introduced methylation to these very people who had never heard about it mm-hmm. and then started doing the research on MTHFR. He yes. even told them they're moving in the wrong direction and they didn't listen. So you've got the man who really should be known as the the uh, the father of methylation. I don't care who's saying what, but in terms of mental health, this man has exposed this to the world like no one else has. Mm, and absolutely, truly, I mean, you know, I, I'm not here to to bow down and worship, but I give credit to where credit is due because when I first met him, I can tell you, you may find this hard to believe, Sammy. I thought I knew everything about the brain. <laughs> I was a, a neuroscience guru back in school. They paid me to TA my own classmates back in those days. I was mm-hmm. hot stuff. I really <laughs> was. Okay. And I figured, you know, when, when Dr. Bowman, my partner, told me about this new strange field uh, where they're doing things that like healing autism and treating schizophrenia, all these things we know is not possible, right? Um, I, at first I said, you got to be kidding me. You're joking. She said, no, you got to see this for yourself. She'd only been at this place for a month. So I said, well, you know, in the worst case scenario, I'll just go and impress them with my brilliance, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, I walked in there with my my three-piece suit. Back in the old days, we wore a three-piece suit. <laughs> I had my briefcase, and I was dialing and profiling and ready to impress the mess out of that institution. I sat down with uh, my other mentor, Dr. Robert DeVito. For 45 minutes, we didn't talk about anything related to medicine. I met Dr. Walsh, who I was quite sure didn't like me. I couldn't read him for anything. (laughs) And by the time my time with them was done, Sammy, the ego that walked into that building, I don't know how it ever fit in that building in the first place, (laughs) but left the size of a fraction of a pinhead. I was extremely humbled. I left there and I said, I don't know anything. I said, this is just, I said, if this is real, then I'm, 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 I have no clue here. Okay. But I took a risk because one, I had no job 
and I'd just been offered a beautiful, very lucrative position uh, in a small town out west. So I was cheesing. I had nothing to lose. But I was so disturbed by what I had seen, Sammy, because it was everything we were taught not to believe. Mm, wow. But everyone there, including my partner, my now business partner, who's a no-nonsense lady, she told me she had witnessed for herself the opposite of what we had been taught. And I figured I had to either explore this opportunity because it might be the greatest thing that no one has ever heard of. Or it might be the biggest joke and piece of crap anyone could ever possibly understand. And I was like, well, if it's nonsense, I'm going to learn that really quickly. And I can always go back to making money and having a lucrative career. <laughs> well, X number of years later, more than a, almost two decades now, we haven't left. So there's a reason for it because the validity, the repetitive validity of people doing well and normalizing has been proven. This is not theory. These are facts. These are truths. A lot of the people who are just starting this stuff, they're dealing with theories. They're not dealing with facts. Because if they're dealing with facts, they should see the entire bulk of their population doing well based upon what it is they've been told and believe and are doing. And that's not the case. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, Dr. Dr. Walsh is so humble. You know, I don't think that he gets enough credit for all that he's done. He has like six patents. We wouldn't even seven. have cell phones. Oh, excuse me, seven. Um, we wouldn't even have a cell phone without his brilliance. But he's such a humble man and he's so willing to share his information. I just don't think people realize, again, like you said, that he really is the father of methylation. And we wouldn't be where we are today without his brilliance. As a matter of fact, I, Henry, the, the, the irony is we wouldn't be having this debate if yes, it weren't thank for him. You. What's amazing to me is, you know, if we're going back to the MTHFR conversation and the resulting therapy, I put that in quotes, being methylated folate and all the issues that we see based on that. I'd love for you to speak to that because you already shared how folates strip methyl. Of course, there's a donation that's happening outside, but in the nucleus of the cell, where, the instru where our instructions are made, at that level of DNA, it takes away so much more than it, than it provides. And the concern for us and what we have been seeing for a number of years now are a lot of adverse effects from methylated folate, neurotransmitter changes, specifically with glutamate and serotonin. Um, we see people do well, like you said, for maybe two or three months, and then there's this huge crash. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Because I really want people to understand why this is problematic and why, even though so many people say, you know, there's not even any, any such thing as under and over methylation, but... <laughs> Obviously, we know that's not true because of how people are responding to these products that are being sold and marketed. And so I'd love if you could, could speak to that for a bit. Yeah, let me let me just talk about the idea that there's no such thing as under this or over that. And, you know, I want you to look at the span of the universe. Everyone knows opposites exist. Tall, short, thin, fat, you know, heavy, light. It's the nature of the universe. Okay. so. If you've got anything that involves a concentration, and people don't understand, methyl is a concentration we're referencing. How much? If you can have too little, of course you can have too much. Okay? If the system isn't working properly, 
you can either back up a whole lot or never produce a whole lot. Okay, these are just broad constructs. Now, what people don't realize is that we have entire um, personality profiles that are very consistent with methylation status, undermethylators and overmethylators. Every now and then there's a crossover in between. In fact, most people are actually normal in methylation. But when there's a glitch in the system, you can underproduce or you can overproduce methyl. And it goes back to your DNA, literally. Okay. So I always say those who are discovering this process are usually the ones who are questioning this whole concept of methylation. Okay. Once you've been doing it and seen it for yourself, as certain skeptical people that are talking right now would, would tell you, um, it's a whole other story. I mean, one of my, my favorite people, I'm not going to tell you who this person is, but we'll walk through airports and she'll just look at people and start going, oh, undermethylated, overmethylated, oh, chiral disorder, <laughs> oh, proper toxicity. You know, she starts telling entire stories about their lives and, and she starts to say, oh, let me go up and give that person a hug because their dog died and, you know, she's having a really hard time and the kids are giving her trouble and, you know, she hasn't slept in three days and da 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 da. Because she's looking at the, the personality types that are written in the physical manifestation of the person. Mm, yes. You can yes. see these things so clearly. So, you know, when you've been doing this for a while and you've got real experience behind it, the stories speak for themselves. They really do. So there's more than validity here because we've got correlation between personality types, academic performance, and all sorts of things and methylation status. Yes. Fact, truth. Now, um, that's true for both under and over methylation. Okay. The other side is, let's talk about the great Abram Hoffer's work with oh, bipolar yes. disorder and schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. When he did his work, niacinamide was a very powerful agent, and that's what he used. And he did not really reference methylation, but what he was truly treating was over-methylation. And that's because people who are over-methylated produce lots and lots of dopamine. And that dopamine was a key factor in the processes that these individuals were going through mentally when they would ruminate, when they would hear voices, all these things. In fact, our pharmaceutical drugs were designed to lower dopamine. Mm, exactly, yes. And that's why we had such tremendous success. I'm not a naysayer in terms of pharmaceuticals. I'm saying that there's a point in a time where they're useful, they can be useful, but to get to the core of the problem, you've got to treat the chemistry. And quite a few people are doing both simultaneously, and that too is okay. But the key here is understanding what you're doing and why. When we've been giving folic acid for a very long time in utero, beyond the first trimester, beyond the year, beyond, you know, so forth, people breastfeeding, folic acid in our diet, uh, the breads, the cereals, you know, uh, enriched in fortified foods, we have created a functional demethylation going on, and we've been turning out individuals who are more undermethylated. And that's one of the reasons why these a lot of medications don't work anymore. Ah, yes. Because people don't realize, we don't realize in medicine, when these drugs were first produced, we had a different condition as far as methylation was concerned. Okay. An absolutely different condition. So we know there's been a change, and the key here is connecting the dots and knowing which dots are connected to which. Okay. But Abram Hoffer wasn't wrong. At the time that he did what he did, 
people were high dopamine individuals. And nowadays, that same category of folks, they're now low dopamine people. So the meds that actually lower your dopamine aren't doing them any good. They're not working very well. Now, all you have to do is ask the general pool of psychiatrists, are these medications working as effectively as they used to Okay, in this pool of patients? And a lot of them will say a lot of times, no, not really. We have to add this med and add that med and do a few different things. But that's where the concept of, of um, the folic acid has played a role. Also, what we really know is that many conditions like autism, like ADHD, um, even some forms of severe, severe depression, um, individuals who are highly addictive, highly addictive personalities are usually undermethylated folks. Okay. And so all this time that we're giving tons and tons of methyl, we're shifting, we're epigenetically targeting without knowing it, our methylation status. And so we are literally inducing susceptibility to many of these conditions. Mm. Especially autism. Absolutely. We said this um, really more than 20 years ago. And now, it was actually a few years ago, I believe it was Johns Hopkins that did a story on the fact that folic acid or folate may be causing autism. Might be a contributor to autism. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Manson. We also know the correlation is very clear with cancer. You've lost colleagues to, to cancer. You've shared that story a couple of times. I don't know if you're open to sharing that um, with us this evening, but... Certainly. It, it actually, it ironically is the, the reason for the development of the Mensa Research Institute. Mm. Um, I had two friends who literally graduated behind me in med school know, walk down that aisle behind me. Um, I was M, another one was M, and another one was M. And these two young ladies, one didn't even make it beyond her pediatric residency. Mm. She lasted two years. She had just gotten married, a beautiful young lady with a beautiful, wonderful husband and a wonderful family. Um, didn't make it to have their first child yet. Mm. She died of breast cancer. The other one I had seen, I hadn't seen for a while. She's a wonderful OBGYN powerful young lady. She, I saw her at a, at a party with, from one of my residency friends, and she said, I'm a breast cancer thriver. Mm. She said, not a breast cancer survivor. She said, a breast cancer thriver. And I was so proud of her. And then I found out only a few months later that the breast cancer had returned in a very, very powerful way. And she began to deteriorate. And I tried calling her because we had some semblance of understanding of methylation and how it worked in some of these conditions yes. and she had been walled off and quarantined by her family. I couldn't get to her. It was extremely, extremely frustrating. No matter how much I tried calling, um, they just wanted her to have a peaceful transition. And it's like looking at a glass door and someone's behind the door and you're screaming, you know, come let us try to help you. And she can't hear you. And then I found out she passed away. And honestly, Sammy, that was it. I said, never again. I said, if I ever find anything that helps anyone in any situation with regard to these, these issues and challenges, as we start to see the crossover benefits of molecular targeting, not just for mental health, but for physical disorders, I said, I'm going to do everything in my power. And when we began to see some of the great correlations, great links in terms of cancer, by the way, cancer is the epigenetic center. 
They are doing the most powerful work in epigenetics. And that's where we've learned a tremendous amount from the oncologists, from the cancer researchers. And so we began applying these methodologies to what we call cancer support. Okay. We're cancer about, we're careful about saying we treat cancer. We sure, support cancer. Yes, um, yes. Powerfully, powerfully so. Every cancer is individualistic though. You've got to know exactly the cancer. You've got to know the timing involved with the treatments. You've got to know when to use and when not to use, when to pull back, when to reinitiate. And that is done through careful association with the oncologists and knowing what they're doing. Okay. But that's an area where we have helped people do better. We've trained doctors overseas to do the same. And so I say that, you know, unfortunately they are missed, but the loss of two very good, wonderful, dear human beings to this creature that anyone who knows me will tell you, don't even say that word to Dr. Mensa. He's going to go off on a tirade. Okay. Um, but if, if we did not understand the critical role of methylation, we wouldn't be able to help these folks. So it's not just mental health. There are other ramifications. Sammy, we're so proud of you and the work you've done. You are one of the people who's helped convince me of the importance of gut health. But, you know, you can't even talk about the appropriate diet if you don't know your methylation status. Exactly. Yes. People thank say, you for I want, people say I want mm-hmm. to eat healthily. What's, a, what's mm-hmm. the best diet? And we sit down and tell them, well, first of all, it depends on what your chemistry is like. Because yes. the best diet for you is not the best diet for John down the street, is not the best diet for Samantha. It all depends on what their chemical situation is. Okay. And it's not about politics or, or belief systems or, or religious beliefs. You know, I tell people of all sorts of backgrounds, look, I understand your culture. I understand your religion. I understand this. But let me tell you the facts and you get to choose. Yes, you are an yes. undermethylated person having a purely plant-based diet. If you've got a mental health condition, will send you in the wrong direction. If you've got high copper on top of that, can predispose you to certain type of cancers. The big picture has to be assessed. And because it is an issue of life or death, I don't mince words. I'm not going to be politically correct. You come to us and you ask us a question, I will give you the answer. You do with it what you wish. But that's because I've seen people die. Okay. I've seen people die for the wrong reasons. I've seen people get worse in their mental health for the wrong reasons. So you can believe whatever you want to believe. I'll share with you what we know. And so, um, it becomes incumbent upon us. We want to do the right thing for ourselves. If your life is okay, listen, it doesn't matter what you eat, so to speak. You know, you, you do okay, you, you, you're balanced, whatever. If you want to do what's best for your system because you've got a serious condition, that's when we get serious. That's when it's let's test you first, then send you to Samantha so she can design a wonderful dietary protocol for you based upon your chemistry. And don't worry about what your cousin Jane ate or did because she's not you, okay? You're an individual. And so we've got to address things individually and you can't help people if you're not accurate in your methodology and your testing and your assessment, okay? So sorry, I, I, I kind of went in that direction, Sammy. It's um, one of those topics that kind of gets me revved up here. You know, Dr. Mensa, I so appreciate it because I think that people need to hear this. And this is one of the reasons why I started the podcast to begin with. And this is a platform where people can get facts. They can get answers. We know there's a direct correlation, like you said, with methylation, cancer, and also copper and women. 
uh, we want to be careful there. We want to be, you know, targeted there. We we can't go around making these these ridiculous claims about how a plant based diet is great for everyone or a right. keto diet is great for everyone because right. we know that's not true. We know it depends on the individual. We know it depends on their chemistry, and that's really what we want to impress upon people that are listening. Know your chemistry. Understand that we're all unique, and that's okay. Some people do better with more plants. Some people do better with more animal products, more protein. Those of us that are undermethylated, we definitely need to have those proteins in our diet. You know, I I was vegan for many years, and at first it was great because I went from a standard American diet to you know a completely raw vegan diet, and I was cleaning out my system. But over time, I really created uh, a, a serious vulnerability in my chemistry. And by the time I got to you, I was ready to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. That is fact. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, that that was my journey. But if we can save people and help people before they get to that point where I was at, then we've done our job. We've done our service to humanity and that that is everything I, and to me and I know it is to you as well we're not definitely not in this for the money um, you know, <laughs> you know it, it's really about saving lives at this point well, Sammy I, I have to give you a tremendous again a tremendous amount of credit because where you've been and the realization of, of what you need to do and, and taking that turn and now you're helping tremendous numbers of people but if you had been in denial and hung in there with with what I would call street corner dictum around do's and don'ts, mm, you know, yeah. you wouldn't be able to help so many people. Now, let me give a shout out of fairness. People who are overmethylated should be on a heavily plant-based diet. Absolutely, yes. Overmethylated, not the undermethylated. Yes. Here's the real irony, and I still haven't figured this one out, okay? <laughs> Why is it that all the undermethylators want to be plant-based and the overmethylators want to be meat-based and there's exactly. the, they're designed to be the exact opposite. <laughs> That's exact amazing, op- I still never understand that. <laughs> but eventually, we, we, we come to terms that, and if you just eat a balanced diet, you're okay. It doesn't matter which way you are because you don't get too much of, of one versus the other. Mm-hmm. But the reality is this. Statistically speaking, those folks in the opposite chemistry camps are somehow drawn into eating the exact opposite way. In both ends. One thing we didn't talk about, and this is your forte here. Look, the question is, why is it you don't tolerate meat in the first place? Do you have problems with your digestive enzymes? Do you have problems because you've got a gut imbalance that makes you queasy? Is it because you're pyroluric? Is it there are a variety of reasons that can make you really not want to touch certain types of foods? And it's not because your body revolts, it's because your system isn't balanced. Mm-hmm. And that's where talking to Sammy comes into play because she can get you there and share with you why your system. The question is, are you actually supposed to eat one way or is it that your system is dysregulated and you can't eat the other way? Yeah, good and that's point. one of the things that also has to be determined. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, when we're, yeah, I mean, thank, I appreciate you saying that because, uh, and we'll be talking more about the GI tract, of course, but in, in the first couple of episodes, I, I, I talked about even, uh, uh, inflammation in the GI tract alone can create depression. It can create, uh, ADHD like symptoms, even though we know ADHD is, 
uh, an under-methylation phenomenon, but we always have to take into account what is going on in the GI tract. We have a lot of under-methylators, you know this, Dr. Mensa, that have SIBO or uh, yeast overgrowth. And, you know, they may also be very zinc deficient. Our anorexic patients are under-methylated and zinc deficient, severely zinc deficient. They don't want to touch meat. They don't like the way it tastes. They don't have a taste for it. Nothing tastes good. And their GI tract is is so inflamed that that really it's hard to digest protein because protein takes a lot of energy to digest. Um, so there are so many variables there. So I'm glad you brought that up because we always want to let people know that even if you are undermethylated like I am or copper toxic like I was and it does run in my family, uh, you're still going to be unique to someone else that maybe has similar chemistry, might be the same age as you, weight, etc., because of that epigenetic component, because of your story. And we're going to be talking a lot more about story as well as we move forward um, uh, with the podcast. But all of these variables are, are so important. And again, this is why working with people that understand the science really understand the facts of the chemistry involved and, and can really help you on, on that deep biochemical level. So I really appreciate that, Dr. Mensa. Sammy, let's let's look at this thing about um, methylated folate, okay? So you've got this creature yeah. and quite honestly, for the most part, there's so much misdiagnosis going on that methylated folate is not the most functional creature in the world anyway. So if you give methylfolate to an undermethylated person, remember the methyl piece acts and goes away. The folate piece now comes and strips away the methyl from your, your DNA. Okay. Um, what may happen is because methylated folate gets part of that backup system that in the short run, you might actually see an improvement and say, oh gosh, Menso was wrong. I feel great. It's been two or three months, and then month number three and a half comes, and you go right back down to normal, and you're going, what's wrong? I don't understand this. I was doing so well. Well, your cycle bottomed out, okay? You just proved to yourself in your own system. You, you, you revved up the backup pathway, but then you didn't fortify the main pathway. Exactly. Because if, if MTHFR was truly part of the, the main pathway of methylation, you should be good all the way through. Yeah, good point. But you're not. It lasts, and the average person lasts only so long, then things go back down to normal. Now, that's if you're under-methylated. If you're over-methylated, why, this could be one of your boys. You could be having a grand old time. But even then, the issue is why use the methylated version if you're over-methylated. Take the methyl out of the equation and just use the folate, folinic acid, or folic acid. Because what you're doing is, it's like trying to put out a, a forest fire, a fire in your kitchen, let's just say. And the fire is going, and you say, well, let me pour a little bit of kerosene in there, and then try to put it out. You're over-methylated. Let's add more methyl, and then try to remove it. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Okay? So, in either condition, really... Your best versions involve the pure versions. Methylated folate is not an appropriate product. It, it really doesn't work like people think. In fact, it really doesn't provide you any long-term utility at all. Okay. So, um, and we're talking, please, we're talking about mental health. Please remember that. 
Don't go find some esoteric, you know, thing saying that in my studies. And how do you know about a depressed mouse, okay, or an anxious mouse? You know, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking really about um, individuals with with very powerful conditions and um, very definitive chemistries. Okay, so uh, I think that's really what we just need to sort of identify with regard to methylated folate. It's part of a system of, of incorrect commentaries and ideas well-intentioned these folks who are using it mean the best but they are going by what it is they were told by the laboratories and by uh, certain systems of of uh, belief and understanding that are just not panning out Mm. yeah thank you for explaining that but it's so important that we share this information with people so they understand what's happening why they've bottomed out what's really going on and also like you said just for both the over and under methylated population we want to be careful with the form that we're using Dr. Mensa, thank you so much for your time this evening. I really appreciate all that you've shared, your vast knowledge and your your many years of experience. And um, we are all truly blessed by you. So thank you again. Thank you, Sammy. We uh, appreciate the opportunity. And as always, uh, really the honor is ours to be able to, to, to work with you and you know talk to folks about some very important topics. We're just trying to help people. And you know, if you yeah. hear us being impassioned, it's because We've seen the pain we've we've had or experienced or knew someone who had the pain, and we just want people to do well. We're vested in a particular situation so that we can help others not suffer. That's where you and I both come from, Sammy, and that's why it's such a pleasure to work with you. Our stories are extremely powerful and contain within them genetic, epigenetic, and transgenerational narratives. Educating yourself with the facts surrounding accurate testing and treatment provides a powerful pathway to healing the brain and body. You can find Dr. Mensa at mensamedical.com. Don't miss an episode of Eat for Life. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast player.